0: I want to welcome everybody to Mershon. Some of you, I suspect, may not have been here before. Uh, I want to especially welcome uh, Judith Butler to Mershon and to Ohio State. It's a great honor and pleasure to have her here. Unfortunately, our director um, is going to be a little late, so rather than persist in waiting for him, um, I'm going to suggest that we get started. Uh, This is supposed to be very informal. Uh, Judith, I trust, needs no introduction to anybody. The rules of the game are going to be that um, it's all in your hands, that is the graduate student, and you may throw something at the faculty uh, if we interject or if least interject too soon. <laughs> um, here's Valerie. I, I should say it is a custom. I mean, if you prefer to, to eat a little bit um, as opposed to crunch through uh, the talk that's, or your discussion, that's fine. Um, and we do ask that you, as it were, bust your own table and just throw in the the over the, over the are. So without further ado, Judith, welcome. And Great. again, thank you very thank much. You.
1: Thank you. <coughs> um, so, um, I'm not quite sure how you want to begin or um, uh, what your expectations are for the two hours we have for us. Uh, but maybe it would be helpful for me if we went around and you um, introduced yourself. Just tell me what department you're dealing really with and um, and if you have a, uh, if you could say something very briefly, just in a couple of sentences, but uh, if either a question you have or a direction you'd like our discussion to go in, that would be useful. And then I can do a kind of quick Hegelian synthesis um, and, uh, and maybe think about uh, ways in which our conversation to proceed what you say.
2: Does that sound okay? Can you start over here? I'll start and I'll be very fast. I'm
3: Julie Rajuski and I do communications and public relations for the Mershon Center.
4: I'm Wendy Walters. I'm in the departments of English and Women's Studies. Um, I'm interested in uh, psychoanalysis as well as issues of rhetoric and public discourse. Um, so, those are my areas of interest, I guess, in terms of the discussion today. I'd, I'd sort of like to address some of the. Um, like issues of, of, pub, of uh, illegitimate versus legitimate public discourse okay. and things like that. Okay. Area.
3: Great. Um, I'm Kristen Hartman. I'm in the English department mm-hmm. and I'm interested in sort of sexual seduction as a metaphor for political seduction and in the family as a model for the nation and sort of what kinds of citizenship models my name is Kate Saber Astry, and I'm with the English department. Um, I have actually a more specific question to ask, sort of in relationship to our reading, today in that I was really fascinated with this concept of the fact that the subject um, is defined by what seems to be a stable sort of signifier, which in fact relies on the instability of the subject, um, and I was interested in. If maybe discussing a little bit more your your assertion that um, that politics needs to sort of address and celebrate the instability of the subject and that this should become something that um, becomes more of a prerequisite for politics to sort of this acknowledgement and how exactly that would work. Okay. Um, I'm Shannon
4: Thomas and I'm
2: in
4: the Department of English and I am interested in issues of performance and kind of what Kate was saying about um, like
3: gender as an effect and um, how you
2: do gender and how
5: you do kinship, so Especially the last article. Okay. I'm Paula Johnson I'm in the Department of Comparative Studies and I've been working in the citizenship and publicity okay. and I was interested in discussing the research and what see the past is critical reflection being and whether or not it's um, if it's sort of to um, disclose the contingency of one of those abilities and kind of recover the, of the decision that, that established the political field. And then I was more interested in the discussion we have about um, the uh, you know, what are the conditions and possibilities for undertaking that if that's what critical reflection should be. Are there structural conditions that installs? Oh uh, yeah, my name is Sidjanish. I teach on work of science. Uh, I study human rights migrant workers and I guess uh migrant work identity.
1: this more fully. I realize you're I'm holding you to kind of really abbreviated versions just to get a um, broad sense of what your interests are, but then you know, don't think that's the last thing you get to say you'll be able to, <laughs> to <actually hear> <laughs> Yeah. My name
4: is Cecilia Felique and I'm also in the Department of English. Um, my interests are in backlash discourse uh. and composition and rhetoric. And um, <coughs> like, Tom, I'm, I'm interested in that idea of the perpetuation and reproduction of ideology, and I'm also interested in the concept of, I guess, hybrid identities, and how that kind of poses an area of, of critical thought and theory. My name is Sheila Fox, and I'm studying socialism and I'm this article,
3: and I'm interested in the way I'm Kristen Baldini, and I'm in comparative studies. <clears throat> and a couple of things. One, um, I work and live and study in a neighborhood undergoing station redevelopment, and I'm interested in. Like what kinds of kinship networks are destroyed, created, and recreated uh, when impoverished neighborhoods undergo redevelopment? Number two, I really want to hear about what you think in light of recent events and gay marriage happening all over. Like, what now?
6: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, my name is I am a part of the Comparative I suppose my interest with this article is um, how the state comes to make people intelligent. Because you do mention in the article that it's a process of becoming real. And I'm interested in how you think the state operates in this way, and what other ideas you think may be
3: operating as well. Um, My name is Melanie Maltry. I'm in the Department of Students. gender-queer sort of representation and cultural relations, um, which obviously <laughs> all of you are talking to. Um, and so I was just kind of um, excited to see that we're going to on the art on Relationship between Marriage and sort of uh, that maintenance of divergence um, still with an um, mm-hmm. queer um, identity and practices and things like that. So. I I'm Deborah I'm English and Similar to Melanie, I'm interested in, um, specifically this article this idea of cultural intelligibility and legitimacy, legitimacy, legitimacy um, especially in regards to queer identities and um, alternative sexualities. Um, yeah. I'm Mackie Edelman, I'm in the department, <coughs> excuse me, Women's Studies. Um, I'm primarily interested in the way that um, changing formations of capital um, and sort of attendant national identities affect the way that we visually represent um, embodiment, especially um, queer embodiment. That's a word. Okay. <laughs> My name is Alana Kumbir. I'm in comparative studies. Um, and I think that what I'm interested in is this question of the state's desire to um, I think in the article, there's the question of state's desire in relation to illegitimate subjects. But I'm also curious about state's desire in relation to socially dead or how we have this simultaneous move to prohibit uh, marriage and kinship while also controlling it for other subjects like welfare. And I'm also interested in some of, just talking more about things and biotechnology and biotechnology. Okay.
4: I'm Anna Shadley. I'm from the Department of Political Science. Um, And I do citizenship work, and I focus mainly on post-communist Europe. But I think your article really does speak to issues of citizenship because it talks, although not explicitly, it gets at varying conceptions of what constitutes citizenship. It gets at um, how do we confer the benefits of citizenship. Um, And I'm interested in that, of course, and also... The issue
5: of what should and what should not be legitimated through the state mm-hmm. and why. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm Yusuf Sarf, i also from both the political science department, and uh, I'm interested in democracy here. And in Iraq I got interested in how the state makes institutions.
1: So the legitimating function of the state.
7: I'm Zach I'm from the philosophy department my um, research generally has been uh, moral and legal conceptions of responsibility but I'm also interested in a lot of other things including one's theory and, uh, but very generally um, I had two, two questions about your article one I was really sympathetic to this worry that um, you may be reifying things like the normality of heterosexual marriage or something like that in engaging in a, in a debate about uh, the rights of the case and lesbians to marry but um, I'm sort of wondering practically at this point um, what are the options for not doing that? Um, when, the and I was also uh, curious about the relationship of uh, your use of psychoanalysis in mm-hmm. the article. I'm not very familiar with psychoanalysis, but um, my training has not made me, uh, the people that I study on here have not generally done sympathetic to it. So be really interested in hearing why you think it's a useful tool and okay. uh,
3: I'm Chahay, I'm also an effective partner. My research interests are mostly in the area of uh, moral systemology, uh, systemology. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also Canadian, so I found a year analysis. It's a comparison in French and American culture, which is very interesting. And I wondered if you thought your analysis, you might have something else to say about specific cultures that are exclusively multicultural. Because you... Um, oh, the idea being that um, societies don't necessarily strictly totally police food is accountable but they have a more open perception of what it means to be a good opinion and I wondered if you thought that might mean that their attitude is to manage you know, the with or so, so they get gay people raising children
2: like, I
5: mm-hmm. I'm Dalek Haide I'm also in the philosophy department um, I generally work in the philosophy of mind uh, and in reading this paper. I'm generally unfamiliar with with, uh, this sort of literature, so maybe this is a a stupid question, but I'm particularly interested in figuring out exactly how how to think about what you call the the field outside the disjunction of illegitimate and legitimate. Great. All right, well, these
1: are all uh, great questions. It's been a real pleasure Just kidding. (laughs)
2: <laughs> uh,
1: all right, this is, um, okay, so um, let's, um, I think maybe the, the best thing to do is to start by going over some of the specific questions about the art that is read, presuming um, that all of you had a chance to familiarize yourself with it, it sounds like that, like you did. Um, and then moving into maybe some more general concerns after, um, you know, doing some basic clarification work. Uh, It seems to me that uh, there are a a couple of different issues here. One has to do with the status of the state, another having to do with the status of kinship, um, another altogether, the critical reflection, and then several, it seems to me, uh, having to do with um, with uh, concrete political dilemmas um, uh, in in the in the present and um, under the state, it seems to me we can we can take up the question of the status of the as if uh, the state's legitimating function and um, also the ways in which it it is said to render render subjects intelligible. How does that happen, or in what sense does that happen? Um, And then it seems to me we can can move on to talk a little bit about kinship. I guess I would like to answer the questions about psychoanalysis in that context. Um, The question of what's critique, what's critical reflection, the instability of the subject the field which is outside the disjunction of legitimate and that seemed to me to be a, a reasonable cluster um
2: okay
1: and uh and then we can we can certainly talk about uh, gay marriage and alternatives um I think you know, along the way, obviously, there are questions about capitalism and biotechnology um, and um, and perhaps uh, human rights frameworks and um, poverty in space, all of which are, are very interesting, um, which we will be able to take up along the way, um, uh, given how you know, we have. Um, uh, and, and for those of you who sort of Said things that were more along introducing your your interests. You may want to, you know, break in and, and specify. Um, I'm also happy for you to interrupt me at, at any point. That of course does not apply to these people.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I think. Uh, um, I think one of the things I was trying to do. In this article, was uh, to take the point of view, um, first of all, um, of a of a person who's desiring state recognition um, uh, for for a set of relationships, and of course, you know, there's a distinction between um, uh, intimate relations that are eligible to be conceived of as part of marriage. And then kinship relations, which um, are, I think, uh, different um, in the sense that we could have any number of kinship relations that are not necessarily mediated by marriage. And I I just want to say, you know, as a matter of course, I'm not sure we have anthropologists here, but at least um, uh, in the field of anthropology and here I'm, I think, very indebted the work of David Schneider and some other people, Sylvia Yanagasako and others, Alan Um It's um, uh, the question of, of how uh, parenting relations are organized or how property is uh, bequeathed. Uh, it's not necessarily the same as the question of, of um, how marriage is regulated or. Um, allocated, <laughs> okay? And um, there's actually, I think I cite in this article, an, an essay by John Borneman, um, who's written a couple of things, an anthropologist at Princeton now, who's written a couple of things about how some contemporary kinship studies and reflections on kinship continue to make the presumption that marriage <coughs> is the, the determining... Um, factor in deciding what a kinship line is, but is um, he, he manages to show that that presumption works its way very often into a set of hypotheses so that the phenomenon you discover, the phenomenon you discover starting with that hypothesis usually ends up re- reflecting reaffirming the hypothesis that allows it to be discoverable. Um, so, um, yeah, so I want to hold those two things somewhat separate. And I also think that in the law, both in the French and the American example, they are separate. And I can give you examples from other, um, from other nations as well if we want to talk about that. Um, but, um, I mean, so the state comes in, in in at least sort of two ways. One, regulating uh, who may or may not marry here, but also um, who may or may not be understood as a legitimate parent, and what are the legitimate ways in which children might be reproduced, okay, which also is in many ways a a state decision. Um, I I started by saying, you know, I was trying to imagine the point of view of the person who's petitioning the state and wanting state recognition. Mm, I think there are two different things I want to say there. First of all, it's one thing to want state recognition, in other words, to say, as a gay couple, I want the state to honor my relationship as it would honor any other. I have the same dignity, longevity, value as any other. Um, and uh, so in marriage is the means by which that recognition is conferred. Therefore, I want that recognition to that means. Okay. Um, it's another thing um, to say uh, that I want certain kinds of concrete benefits. Um, and want to participate in a system of, ben- of, of, of obligations, responsibilities, um, uh, benef- benefits as well uh, that, um, that are implied by marriage. Um, and, and, and sometimes that's a bid for recognition and sometimes it's not. <laughs> sometimes I don't really care that the state gives me recognition, that is to say, honors my relationship for its intrinsic value and says, I honor you. Uh, I, I now pronounce you, you, I recognize you, I'm not pronouncing. We uh, get to be, as it were, conferred, you know, spoken spoken by the state, conferred upon by the state, exactly. Uh, seen by the state, brought before the state. The state here, you know, meaning um, uh, courts, and we're going to talk a little bit about what the concept of the state is in a minute. So recognition is, I think, one thing, and that can have an extremely symbolic um, meaning, and I don't mean by symbolic, merely ornamental. I mean, it can, in fact, uh, offer a kind of um, official recognition that has otherwise been um, uh, repelled from, from people on the basis of, what, sexual orientation or the sexual character of an intimate relationship. Um, and that does have to do, I think, with being uh, recognizable, as it were, um, as a subject before the law, so I don't mean to minimize recognition, and I think um, uh, here my uh, my colleague Nancy Fraser has, I think, written bit about this uh, at length. Um, but um, but the question of benefits and obligations and responsibilities, um, I think that uh, and even the rights. Um, uh, this this strikes me as slightly different, uh, since one could want, uh, say, uh, certain kinds of benefits that are associated with marriage, like um, if there's still a benefit to being married in the tax code. I guess that's a quite controversial question, but let's imagine that there is. Um, uh, or a benefit uh, that goes along with health insurance or a benefit that goes along with having... Um, uh, having medical, medical power of attorney over a middle <coughs> person uh, who is your partner and who may or may not be ill. Um, uh, um, being designated as next of kin for all kinds <coughs> of legal purposes um, uh, including the, um, the transfer of property. Um, so um, and in certain states clearly being able to own homes together, own property together or or indeed, um, uh, uh, potentially uh, linked with um, capacity to um, to um, uh, jointly parent. Okay. Uh, although for the most part, those have remained interestingly Uh So, so um, you know, one question for me here is why it is. Um, I think there are two different questions I'm, I'm posing about why it is one would petition the state for uh, a certain kind of recognition or, a certain, or, or the allocation of certain kinds of benefits or entitlements. And, um, and I worry about both of them for, for different reasons. Um, if I say uh, that without the state's recognition of my relationship, my relationship is not is considered unrecognizable, or that it's a shadow relationship, or that it lacks a certain kind of standing in the public realm, or that it is still shrouded in shame, or it is considered less legitimate than others, so my love is not uh, legitimate love, and the losses I may undergo are not legitimate losses, or... Um, any any number of, of of issues like that. It seems to me that I'm implicitly saying that the state and the state alone, uh, or the state primarily, uh, has the power to confer recognizability on on me and my relationship. Um, and, and and I'm accepting. I'm accepting the social order in which the state monopolizes um, the power to confer recognition. Now, I think that there are uh, all kinds of reasons to question whether the state ought to be, as it were, um, ratified (laughs) as the exclusive or primary instrument through which uh, recognition is conferred. And we might think, say, of the work of Antonio Gramsci in this respect, um, who um, felt very strongly that there were social identities that could be uh, very vitally articulated and rearticulated throughout um, civil society that were not necessarily regulated by the state or by, or by law in particular. Um, and we could think of various kinds of institutions that are, that are not necessarily um, state-based institutions, including religious, educational, community-based uh, institutions, and even social movements, in which identities get articulated, supported, reinvented, recognized, um, uh, um, that that do not depend on state recognition and very often militate against it or provide alternative sources for that kind of recognition. Um, So one thing I worry about in the petition, say, for gay marriage uh, right now is the way in which it does not seem to uh, reflect upon the way in which the state is being once again invested with the power, either exclusive or primary power, um, to um, to be the source of legitimate recognizability for um, for persons. Okay, um, so so that's one question. I mean, the second question about rights, etc. I mean, I was at a demonstration the other day where somebody who was pro gay marriage had a but sharp Uh, you have this many rights without marriage you have this many rights with domestic partnership but with
2: marriage you've got this many and it was (laughs) well
1: I'll take the Uh, (laughs) full one and I was was thinking about that and then right behind them was a kind of an anti-gay marriage queer group that said um, uh, oppose state terrorism (laughs) no to gay marriage no to the occupation which you know which one? <laughs> all of them. <laughs> um, uh, there's something I don't know if it was don't pay taxes or something else. I didn't remember. It was some third thing which was kind of equally, sort of somewhat um, uh, idiosyncratically it, it juxtaposed with the rest. So, but there you know there was clearly a little tension in the in the contemporary. Um, I don't know if to call it a lesbian gay movement or a queer etc. Between a more kind of queer lesbian gay. Um, uh, uh, set of concerns. But um, I think the question, the other question that doesn't get asked um, often enough or adequately enough um, is whether it's right that marriage be a precondition for certain kinds of entitlements uh, like health care. I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, my partner doesn't have health care and some heterosexual partners does and that's unfair. It's another thing to say are people who have health care by virtue of being married and others who are not eligible for it um, with similarly difficult employment situations um, who are not eligible for it um, by virtue of not being married at all. Uh, is, under what conditions is it, is it is it justifiable to say that marriage um, that marriage ought to be a precondition for gaining health care benefits in this country. Um, or if you decide I mean, let's say you were married, and now you're in another relationship, and you have really good friends, and you also have strong ties to your biological family, and you want your property to go in a whole lot of different directions, Um, you live in a state in which uh, it's presumptive that your property would go to your spouse or your ex-spouse, why can't you just... uh, And let's say you even get married again... Um, What's to say that uh, marriage should be the uh, uh, that that the person with whom you're you happen to be married at any given time is the one who should receive that property? It may be that you want to distribute it along throughout your kinship circle in ways that actually honor the various um, uh, relations you have that that are not adequately described or included. Uh, under the marriage bond. It may be you even have a marriage bond or you did, or that it's even important for you for separate reasons, but it may be that that's not the, that it is not therefore um, um, understood as the default um, uh, mechanism through which property would, ch- would and should be uh, distributed. So um, my view, my second view, I mean, the question, wait a second, do we really want the state to have primary exclusive power to recognize I second view really is um, um, whether or not one is for or against gay marriage it seems that marriage should be disarticulated through certain kinds of benefits and obligations and I do not hear that particular issue being discussed in the gay marriage debate right now um, the gay, bari- gay the gay marriage debate as it's currently being formed um, uh, it, it tends to be between um, uh, gay lesbian, liberals and their allies who uh, are making arguments on the basis of equal treatment, understandably, uh, for gay marriage, um, and um, uh, over and against those who have a variety of homophobic views about um, marriage being a heterosexual institution or mm, gay or lesbian sexuality being unnatural or un- unfit for the marriage uh, bond or subversive of the marriage bond or destructive of culture as we know it or whatever it may be. Um, the other thing that has to be said here um, uh, importantly is, um, is that, is that um, the bid for state recognition I think also comes um, in the aftermath of, um, of what in the U.S., um, it was understood as the AIDS crisis. I happen to think there is still an AIDS crisis. There's an AIDS crisis, especially among poor uh, uh, um, uh, men and women of color in this country, and an <coughs> enormous AIDS crisis in South Africa, which as far as I can tell, the North American gay, lesbian movement has not been paying attention to. I'm not quite sure why AIDS activism didn't extend, or it does sometimes extend and I can name the people who extended it, but it seems to me in London there's more Continuing AIDS activism as a a problem that pertains to uh, mainly uh, poor, poor and poor people of color in various parts of the globe who are being systematically denied um, retrovirals or um, access to health care. If you're if you're a white, bourgeois, middle class person and HIV positive, somehow it's going to work out for you to get that that cocktail you're going to be able to be maintained and I'm, I'm, I'm worried that that's now you know signaled the end of the crisis as such it, it's not, it's not it's just the displacement of the crisis into areas where questions of enfranchisement are, are conventionally faced but um, that said um, my sense is that the gay marriage movement has, has to be understood as a kind of compensatory phenomenon as a way of sanitizing and normalizing um, gay sexuality, post-AIDS, um, inaugurated, I think, by um, a set of gay critics um, um, uh, who, who I would call culturally conservative, who, who ended up blaming what they called gay male promiscuity for the um, spread of the AIDS virus. Okay, now if you mm-hmm. blame so-called gay male promiscuity for the spread of HIV what you're basically saying is that a certain kind of sexual practice causes uh, causes HIV rather than HIV is a virus that is transmitted through certain kinds of practices if and when do not practice safe sex okay I mean, the practice itself' is not the cause of anything but it is the conduit if it's not if it's, if it's not done responsibly um, if it's not done with with safe sex, Precautions. So, but you know that causal argument was always lurking in the background. It was always being, it was, it was certainly being um, um, promulgated by uh, funda- fundamentalist um, um, uh, uh, Christian um, ministers of various kinds who did understand homosexuality to be bringing down upon itself um, a, a plague. Um, uh, and this was a kind of punishment for its unnaturalness and deviance um, and unfortunately I think the gay movement took that up in a different way and said close our bars and um, uh, let us buy property and now let us get married and you will see that we are um, as normal as thou and I, and I think you know Michael Warner's work has obviously been very crucial in trying to trace this particular genealogy um, that said um, I think there is uh, there are an array of sexual arrangements that are that somehow fall between the two kinds of caricatures of uh, perfectly happy stable marriage and uh, uh, disease-ridden promiscuity. Okay, uh, um, and that uh, a number of people live in live lives of serial monogamy or of um, or of complex sexual arrangements, or of sexual arrangements that are some known, some unknown. Um, uh, it seems to me that the complexity of of um, uh, of of, the, of, of, a, of a life history about sexual history is is it cannot always be adequately described in terms of um, the idea uh, either of a of a of a a single enduring bond or uh, a mad rush into sexual anarchy. I mean, there are a whole host of arrangements that (laughs) fall between and that have been as viable as any other set for living a life sexually. Um, Not not that sexuality is easy to live. I think actually sexuality is not easy to live. I don't think finding a social organization for sexuality is an easy thing to do. If there's something one gets from psychoanalysis, it may be that any effort to organize sexuality in a way that stays on track tends not to stay on track. Okay, and that's just to say that there's a certain kind of detour that sexuality takes. It's not It's not always fully docile and obedient to the ways in which it's being socially organized. It's also, I think, um, you know, why people who you know, take the code say, oh, sexuality is disciplined in this or that way, or being reproduced, reproduced in this or that way. As if social powers or discursive powers can keep it on track. I, I think are mis misreading the the way in which social power works in relation to sexuality. You can try to control, censor, craft, reproduce sexuality along certain lines, and yet seems to me that that there's also a kind of resistance to regulation at the heart of sexuality that's not easy to think about. It's enigmatic. I don't want to romanticize sexuality as, as intrinsically unruly, but I do think it, it has a difficult relationship to rules, it has a difficult relationship to rules. Uh, and and, and we, we can talk about why that is. But... Um, Uh, I I worry that those people have been trying to make their way in and outside of marriage, in and outside of monogamy, in and outside of being single, being double, or being in whatever multiple way they are, um, that those are now, um, as it were, um, desanitized, right? There are modes of sexual arrangements that are being, I think, repudiated through the gay marriage bid and I think are associated both with AIDS and shame and promiscuity and... um, Uh, uh, and abjection. And I I think that that part of the lesbian gay movement, but also the feminist movement that that has been dedicated to thinking critically about social inventiveness and what kinds of opening up the question, well, what could the organization of sexuality be like and what would work and would this be any better and would we feel less pain or less jealousy or less Suffering, or would things last longer if it was organized the following way? That that whole way of thinking um, has been, in some ways, foreclosed, shut down by the, the the rush, the rush to the altar. So I do um, I do worry about that.
2: Why don't I stop for a moment, please? I'm um, not really sure what you mean by sexuality.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of assume you're talking about it as an attribute of a single person. Are yeah. you talking about it as the way a person relates to other people, or is it something larger about group phenomenon? Okay. Can you just say
2: more?
1: Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I think that, that it's, a, it's a very complicated term that has several, several kinds of meanings. I think when we talk about legal discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, we usually are assuming that an individual has something called sexuality. But, you know, we could call it, you know, my homosexuality or, um, you know, someone else's bisexuality. But, my, you know, my view has been um, that this way of talking about sexuality actually makes it into a kind of personal attribute or expression when actually I think those terms have, you know, emerged historically over time. We've come to take them on as terms that express something very singular about ourselves but in fact, um, you know, I think they do denote social modes of, of organizing a and rendering intelligible sexual desire. So, um, so it is a kind of received social category, which nevertheless is the one through which I designate something that's supposed to be very personal about myself. Um, I come to treat it as if it's an expression of me, uh, and I can even say that I have a sexuality, which is a very funny grammar as far as I'm concerned. Even having a sexuality, just, uh, I think it's just. I wish that there was a truth, a comedy we could really do on this. Um, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, uh, if there's any having to be done, probably my sexuality has me. Uh, and then the question is, you know, where did that sexuality come from anyway? And how did it get formed and, you know, stylized in the way that it did? I mean, would it have even been possible without? Um, certain family dynamics or certain kinds of social conditions. I'm not sure. So what is it that's actually crafting me as I am set to to have a sexuality of my own, or if I, or as I am set to choose my sexuality? That's another one. Oh my goodness, <laughs> choose your sexuality. So is it analogous to something like an ethnicity, a sort of
3: larger thing that individuals
1: somehow
2: participate
3: in?
1: Well, I guess I I think it's important that sexuality be understood as something that is socially discursively organized prior to my entering into it. I enter into it not as its plum though. Don't, I don't like that either. I don't like the idea that, uh, oh, I'm just determined by some social category that precedes me. It's not quite right because I enter into it and it gets re-articulated by virtue of my entering into it in a certain way. And I guess this would be a kind of second place where psychoanalysis would come in, right? I mean, A lot of us, you know, grow up with very similar social structures and end up with really very different sexualities. And the question is, well, how did that happen? So I think it's not radically determined. And as I said, I think there's this difficulty that sexuality maintains in relationship to to real German behavior in any case. Um, So, you know, I want to kind of keep a certain tension there between uh, an appropriation and re enactment of sexuality and a kind of social discursive precedence to it as a, as a social category. Anybody else want to intervene here with questions?
5: I mean, actually, you say, for, you know, you that you're building know, sort of into that, that relationship with that kind of discursive structure or I mean, maybe might, I think of a kind of like identification, right, or um, if, you, you know, if that's that kind of relationship um, you know, I'm not kind of determined by it, but you know, maybe um, you know, there's some kind of, you know, like, I think we'll do completeness and interpolation there. Like, is that, I mean, hopefully I'm not like making make but is that a kind of, you know, site of agency, or is that, you know, I mean, if, it, if it's not a kind of complete determination, it like, should then be a kind of site of agency, or, or.
1: Um, and so yeah.
5: conscious agency, I guess, but. Mm-hmm.
1: Um. Well, of course, if one says that one enters into sexuality, there's a question, of, does one enter into sexuality the way one enters into a contract, knowingly and, and, and rationally, um, you know, uh, figuring out whether it's in your best interest. And I would say, no, that's not
2: how
1: you I mean, one could say that one has entered into sexuality, and that would be good Altazarian reading, although you couldn't really talk about sexuality for all kinds of reasons. Uh, but Zizek would say that, uh, or maybe a Lacanian uh, formulation would say that. Entered into it, you know, interpolated, inculcated. Um, but that, of course, is passive verb. So it makes it makes it gives a certain kind of precedence to the um, to sexuality as something that's already structured and into which one is somehow inserted. Um, and 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 that level of uh, that passive construction would also bring you to a degree. And I think for me, um, uh, agency is neither uh, I enter into it, nor is it vitiated by having been entered into it socially against my will. But agency emerges precisely at that juncture where, um, where uh, it is clear that I am, I am had by something, I am, I am gripped by something, I am crafted by something that precedes me and is more powerful than any choice at the same time I make my way with this in some way that has a certain kind of singularity or a certain kind of um, unpredictability to it um, which is not the same as a kind of rational choice entering it from the outside but it's a kind of agency that becomes possible within, the, within, a, within a, 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 a scene of social constraints um, and so it's that very juncture of, um, uh, of, of, of having been as it were inculcated and yet finding my way in the midst of that inculcation. I'm I'm inculcated and yet I do find (laughs) my way. Uh, So how is it how are both of those things true? And it seems to me that it's that it's that it's that paradoxical formulation which is the condition of agency as I understand it in this terrain. Yeah. I
4: actually have well please for both of you but Jordan I forgot your name I'm sorry. Oh. Thomas. Thomas. I suspect I'm entering into a debate that I know nothing about in other fields or something like that, but um, you mentioned something about sexuality and identity. And I don't know, again, I don't know a lot about this, but I'm just a little concerned about it. Maybe you can explain it better to me. Um, Because it seems to me that yes, certainly, for some people, it is a large part, if not a very large part of their identity, but, even people to whom sex is very important. Not all of them would consider that part of their identity. Um, and I'm wondering if that has to do with what is accepted in the mainstream or not. Um, I don't know. I just wanted to know more about what you meant by sexuality and identity.
5: Well I guess I was thinking you about um, identification, like um I, I mean, my understanding of that process seems similar to a higher kind of relation on kind of becoming subject. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. and how <coughs> Through through you know, like how we identify that uh, my understanding of kind of like reach mm-hmm. that and kind um, of sure, me <laughs> right. like not understanding about dedication as a process through which you you kind of find out what the desire is. Um and so kind of you know, I guess I see that process as being not a stable identity, but that kind of um that kind of act of identification mm-hmm. acting that it is a subject to the act or but mm-hmm. I don't you know but that's an act I think, you know, that's done by Something that's not yet subject, and I don't know if that's not yet subject so as agency. I feel like that's just you discussed that in psych like power mm-hmm. or, or, or dealing with that. But that's where I feel like I, I started kind of relating really to in your, your question of mm-hmm. agency around how do we have agency before you have a subject, or what's the, the agency of, of, of uh, something that, that's called in some the, the language and social. Media? Yeah. Um.
1: Okay, I mean, the question of the subject is slightly different. So I'm going to hold off on that just for a moment. But I guess um, what I wanted to say. Um, Alana? Anna. Anna, sorry. Okay. Anna, there you are. Um, what I wanted to say there is, um, you know, the question, okay, I mean, I, I sort of asked about the, the grammar, the, you know. I have a sexuality, or you could say, well, what's your sexuality? What's his sexuality? I mean, we all know
4: what we're asking,
1: what we say. Well, we do, we do. But you're also suggesting that it may well be that some people don't take that up as part of their self-definition or their understanding of identity.
4: Perhaps, I don't
1: know. Uh, Absolutely. And, And in fact, I think we have to understand it as a very specific kind of historical discourse that has taken hold in certain places and certain times, um, but there are reasons to question why it has taken hold as it has, uh, what are the places where it has not taken hold in that way, uh, where sexuality is, say, described relationally rather than as, as a feature of identity, uh, and also, uh, or, you know, the question of sex, which, you know, if the quote points out, you could talk about your sex in terms of biological anatomy, or you could talk about sex as an activity you engage in, or you could talk about your sex as some kind of um, desire or pulsion that works through you, Um, that also needs to be thought through, I think, quite carefully, because um, uh, uh, it may may well be that, um, uh, that in... In, in, in one or more of those senses of sex, they may not, that, that one or more of those senses of sex may not be built into an explicit self-identification. Um, and the conditions under which it is, it seems to me, has everything to do with how we are socially and discursively framed in certain ways, and whether we actually have a choice about that, mm-hmm. or whether to be to be to be a subject, <laughs> to be a subject, man, that you kind of fess up, like you better find one you know better know better know you better have it better, <coughs> you know how you describe yourself you know uh uh and, and you know there are all kinds of reasons to be wary you know of, about those categorizations given um when they operate in that way as kind of preconditional because then how is one supposed to relate to them critically to so find one one's way with them um Anyway, so I think you know, these are all uh, good good questions. Um, uh, I don't think the state is the same as the law, and I don't think the state is monolithic. I want to be able to add that as well. And, and I, you know, I kind of struggled with this, with this essay that you read because I, I kept using the state as if it were a single thing, and uh, my girlfriend, who of course refuses to marry me, uh, is a political theorist and she's always accusing me of having a monolithic conception of the state and I and I always com- recommit this crime. So <laughs> she refuses to marry me and I re- recommit the crime of using a monolithic conception of the state and all of it seems to be under the specter of Marxism. but <laughs>
2: uh,
1: I think it's important to realize um that what we call the state and what we understand as um, the field of power are not the same and that there are bureaucratic and disciplinary agencies that are not always coordinated with one another. So the state can be doing one thing. one part of it can be doing one thing in relation to marriage and it can be doing a completely different thing in relation to marriage with another part of itself. And I, I think it would be wrong to understand this vast bureaucratic um, field that we call state power and then say disciplinary power or other forms of power that are not state power I think it would be a massive mistake to understand it as a unitary subject or a, or a single monolithic entity that has one set of interests and one set of interests alone, uh, and that it knows what it's doing at all times um, I think this is just not true um So, um, you know, forcing women on welfare into marriages or trying to um, uh, insist that uh, families are better off uh, when um, poor African-American women get married, you know, um, that there's a kind of uh, promotion of marriage in that domain, um, which happens... um, in the name of certain kinds of ideas of family health or uh, even racial normativity um, not understanding, say, how kinship ties ties actually work, say, in urban African American families that, you know, maybe depend on marriage and maybe really don't Um, and and what viable kinship arrangements are. Um, That strikes me as very different from the ways in which the marriage debate is being played out in relationship to um, to gay-lesbian marriage petitions. Uh, you would think that they would be happy to give marriage to homosexuals because it would then make them healthy. They would have healthy families. But, well, no. The very conception of a gay family is uh, is so obviously um, difficult that, that, that the same ideology cannot be um, universalized across the board. Yeah. Do you
3: see as the possibility of the promotion of heterosexual marriage by the conservative movement as a possible backlash against the homosexualism
1: for gay marriage. A promotion of, of heterosexual right. marriage. Oh, yeah, I, mean, I think we're going to see lots and lots of commercials of happy heterosexuals with lots of rings and <laughs> lots of property and lots of children and dogs and vacations. And then it
4: ends up being, of course, a threat to women as well as
1: well, I think, you know, I actually don't know whether marriage, per se, is oppressive to women. Or, you know, I don't have like an argument about marriage, per se. I mean, this may seem kind of weak-willed on my part, but the fact <laughs> of the matter is, is that I'm not sure there is such a thing as marriage, per se. I think there are marriages, and it's a complex institution, and if mm-hmm. you read someone like Nancy Cott's, you know, history of the marriage institution, you'll see it's gone through many, it has invented, its her view, it has invented this at its core. It's not like there's a stable marriage form and then there are departures from the norm. For her, it's been nothing other than a series of innovations. That is the history of marriage. And if you to say, what is marriage? Then you have to do a kind of genealogy of the innovations that comprise the term. Um, I think that um, uh, what I worry about is that the idealized pictures of straight marriage or gay marriage is that the difficulty of loving another human being and the difficulty of finding a social organization with which to have continuing viable relations of any kind
3: gets set to the side.
1: And, you know, that as one grasps onto that ideal, one becomes less capable of dealing with kind of the lived difficulty of, you know, erotic and and emotional life um, in present historical circumstances. And I think anything that helps us gain more resources to live that difficulty or find our way within it is a good thing. And I'm afraid idealization very often functions to paralyze our capacity to think precisely about what is difficult.
5: Isn't this at the core of, of, our, of, our, of our, uh, our own individual relationship? Maybe this is a question you were asking before, but I, almost, but I didn't understand. Um, is this at the core of our, our relationship to our own sexuality as subjects, this sort of fantasy that, that, that sort of... I don't know, motivating
1: or driving <laughs> fantasy, right? That that you're just sort of trying to always sort of fill in, uh, and never fully able to. Um, well, so you know,
8: mean, that's okay. a, that's an interesting, yeah. Please. Go ahead. No, I, 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 I'm, sorry, I'm
1: sorry. Well, I think that's to take it in another direction, and it's an interesting one. Uh, it may be um, that idealization is part of the difficulty of of sexual life. You know, that we are driven by idealizations, and we are driven to realize them in certain ways. But if that's true, then I think it's equally true that the kind of devastation that follows from life not being commensurate with idealization at every moment is, equal, is, is equally a part of what we would understand um, um, as, as sexual life, that year you know, I would say, under the historical circumstances in which we live. So, um you know, that, that may well be true, and I, I think that people who would, who would hold psychoanalytically to a, to a position like that, that idealization is an inevitable part of it, but that it would have to be understood as, as, as um, uh, you know, as having compensatory dimensions, as producing forms of loss, or um, de-idealization as a consequence and that this whole story is, is, is part of the complexity of the, of the sexual trauma itself. Um, okay, I, I sort of think maybe... Uh, uh, okay, of course, there's so much to say, I guess, and, I, and I'm, I'm doing too much talking, so I'm just going to say a few more things, and then I'd really like to open it up. Um, The one thing I wanted to say um, is that I think it's very important to see that most of the places that are allowing gay marriage are not necessarily allowing, by virtue of gay marriage, uh, they they don't necessarily have any implications for family law or for um, adoption procedures or access to (coughs) reproductive technology or um, precedents about how custody disputes would be settled, that all, that, that body of law is, is developing very separately from the gay marriage question. And, um, uh, and in fact, in some states where there is something called second parent adoption, which is an actually an institution that um, has been developed mainly by heterosexuals who are not in married relations but who wanted to be able to adopt each other's children, or by um, uh, family members who wanted to have adoptive rights over children, even when they weren't married to a biological or primarily adoptive parent. Um, but second-parent adoption is set the precedent of there being the capacity to adopt a child outside of being married to the prior parent, biological or adoptive, and. And uh, that has been an extremely progressive move uh, for many people um, um, uh, for all kinds of reasons. And, um, and the one thing I, I worry about with, uh, with, with the gay marriage petition is that if it starts to um, demand that adoption rights and rights to reproductive technology follow from gay marriage then what it will do is reinstall marriage as a prerequisite of those rights and we will have a closing down of um, of of precedents like second parent adoption uh, or adoption according to kinship needs right you could be adopted by somebody who's taken care of you their whole life um, or by two people who've taken care of you your whole life um, um, if you're still a legal child um, and, uh, and and that can happen by virtue of the, of the social the of ties that can be established before a court of law but if marriage is once again linked with adoptive rights then it seems to me that it becomes a prerequisite and those other kinds of social bonds get to mean so I'm worried again about forms of kinship that um, are not mediated through marriage that may well be enormously socially supporting um, that could be um, being legitimized by virtue of uh, marriage becoming uh, relinked with um, with, parent- with parenting rights in this way. Um, somebody asked about critical reflection. I guess I'd like to try to talk about that a little bit. Um, I think um, I think when I was saying um, that the way the the math falls out is that either you're for gay marriage, well you can, there's like three positions. I don't know what position you can take right now in public discourse. You can be for gay marriage. You can be for gay marriage on the basis of equality. Now, I was just saying before that in Corvallis, Oregon, I gather there are no marriages being performed because the the clerks said that um, they couldn't see marrying heterosexuals because that would be to engage in discriminatory activity, I think that's going to be very funny if heterosexual marriage becomes a discriminatory act. <laughs> um, you know, they said, well, would you would you agree, you know, to sell property only, only to certain people of a certain race, you know, and, and not of another race? Well, of course not. That's that's way discrimination. Why would you give out marriage licenses just to heterosexuals and not to? So okay, you know, mm-hmm. so we've got that going. right serious equality argument. Um, And by the way, I think there are sort of differences in the debate between those who say um, gay people are equal to straight people, that that if you look substantively at gay social structures and gay relationships, they're equally stable, equally valid. That's an argument that depends on certain kinds of empirical claims about what gay relationships actually are. And there's another more formal argument that just says... mm, Sexual orientation should not be a consideration uh, in the allocation of marriage rights, which is just, you know, a pure equality argument that says nothing about what the lifestyles are, or does not make any substantive cultural comparisons between lifestyles, or even, you know, claiming cultural or, or social co-legitimacy in that sense. But it's a formal legal argument in favor of equality. Um, but if we think about what the public discourse is, you can be for, you can be against. I don't mind working with them, I just don't think they should be married. It undermines my, I don't know this one. It undermines my marriage to have them marry. Like why? I'm not sure why. But I need to know that everybody who's married is like me in some way. There's some tacit community of them married and they must all be tacitly heterose- or explicitly heterosexual. Otherwise, my marriage is devalued they're devalued if they get married marriage is devalued therefore my marriage is devalued I'm I'm not sure how the argument goes but it goes something like this Um, and then if you're outside of that right where are you where are you Um, there's an argument there whether gay marriage is legitimate or not there is a presupposition that within the gay and lesbian community that marriage is the legitimate way to go and that other sexual arrangements are illegitimate When other sexual arrangements are understood as illegitimate, they're usually understood as promiscuity or anarchism or the death drive itself or suicidal something. Um, but it seems to me that when we um, uh, when we suspend the kind of high um, moral discourse about what's legitimate or illegitimate um, we have uh, we have the possibility of asking what it is that is framing these debates on what is legitimate and illegitimate and that strikes me as, as what I would call a critical question and I mean critical in a in a pretty precise way um, I, I mean I mean critical not to criticize something as good or bad but critical in the sense of Interrogating the conditions of possibility of of an argument as it is articulated in its current form. What are the conditions of possibility uh, for this argument being staged within these terms and no others? What must be foreclosed for this argument to be articulated this way? And what's the history? What's the prehistory of this um, of this argument uh, that is that is not only not being but, was, but what must remain untellable for the terms of this argument to become naturalized and taken for granted as such. And so that's that's part of what I understand as, as a kind of critical reflection. I'm not sure that there's a decisionism in it. I'm not sure it has much to do with decision. I'm kind of very skeptical of the whole Schmittian move no, right now. Are you thinking yeah. of the, the, the Meridian decision where we
5: have yeah. mm-hmm. And the I mean talks about, um, about um, the ability about doing this kind of analysis of of, kind of fixed, you know, for data as kind of kind of uh, you know, objectified naturalized um, uh, you know, uh, discourse and looking at set kind of lanes that cause that, that makes, I Yes, I think the
1: so place I mean I know actually what Cloud agrees with, with Derrida on this particular thing but if we're going to talk about how a de- debate is de- delimited what is the delimitation um, um, uh, well, how is the field being delimited what, what, what are the options for, sexu- how, for how sexuality can be organized how is it delimited and how does that delimitation affect a certain kind of um, effacement of other possibilities I think that's a fine question but to say, to imagine that there's a decision, like that there's some person or even some single practice that's performing that delimitation, I don't think I buy that. I don't think I buy that. Um, uh, I think I think that that delimitation takes place over time and through all kinds of very complicated, tacit um, kinds of assent that um, would would mess with most of our conceptions of what decision decision actually
3: is. Yeah? Um, I was at an HRC conference years ago, but I remember it ended in this sort of battle between uh, sort of privileged gay people who, of course, like HRC, have advocated for this white marriage, this like white gay marriage, and we were all happy like straight people, and then poor people and people with different sexualities and of color, on the other side, you know, sort of criticizing all of this stuff that HRC was, was advocating for. And it seems like the gay...
1: The, the Human Rights... Yeah. I'm sorry, what's it called? The Human Rights Campaign. Human Rights Campaign, which is the main gay lesbian lobby in Washington, D.C. Yeah,
3: and I just I think that's probably, like, one of the big problems, is that this move for gay marriage is being done by organizations like HRC, which do exclude not just people who don't want to get married, but also people of color, and people with different kinship relationships, and people who might not want to be in just a couple, who might have extended family.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So I wonder, like, how can we, can we participate? Like, I'm in a binational relationship, and really need to get married, so I don't get separated from my partner, but. Yeah. I wonder can we participate, can we take the gay marriage and not take everything that goes with it? Uh, very
1: possibly, you know, very possibly. And you know, I, I actually think um you know uh and this is why you know I don't have a view on marriage per se. You know, I think <laughs> it's it's a shifting political reality. And 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 I think um uh you know if you can get married in order to secure a green card for somebody whom who you care about or even are actually involved with it's another thing to accept that green cards should be allocated on the basis of, 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 of marriage so if you get the green card that way what do you, you know the question might be you know but how can you also mobilize against um, the the way in which our contemporary political culture is organized such that that's the only way you can get it.
2: Um,
1: um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not a purist, you know, politically. I don't take the green card for that reason, but if you take it, there might be something else you could do to try to, you know, rethink I mean, there are lots of immigration issues so that need to be Unless you're a That would certainly be one of them. Uh, yeah. Um,
7: earlier you made a distinction between the uh, the, um, the state performing a function of recognizing and legitimating yes, certain yes. relationships versus the state allocating benefits and, and things like that and uh, setting up systems of obligations and things like that. And I'm, I think that's a really helpful analytic distinction. Um But I guess I'm wondering about the possibility of trying to push the state to um, perform things like recognition, legitimation, without also uh, conferring benefits. So I'm imagining the state just sort of giving awards to, you know, helpful relationships or something that have no actual meaning other than just saying, nice job. Uh, (laughs) You know, so I'm wondering about the possibility (laughs) of saying, you know, we want recognition and we want legitimation, but... We're not so much concerned with the benefits. It seems to me that um, it's hard for me to conceptualize it really being legitimate without there being some kind of... Well,
2: uh, yeah.
1: I mean, the reason you won't see the the human rights campaign taking up my suggestion that marriage be regarded as merely symbolic is that they want to be able to make the legal argument that um, there's a, a material disenfranchisement um, and going on and that it's the it's, it's result of um, unequal treatment so they want they want the legal basis for the claim very very clearly and they want equality before the law um, and i think um, uh, so so yeah politically speaking it's not going to it's not a popular view uh well't no I wasn't i wasn't, I
7: wasn't uh, trying to criticize anything I'm, I guess I'm saying uh, you know I would like to see the separation of those things but I'm wondering about the real possibility of them being totally yes
1: and, I, and I'm just suggesting to you that it, it doesn't it doesn't seem uh, it doesn't seem to be the, the way in which uh, that the contemporary political movement is actually going um, and I think that this may also be this may also have to do with a certain kind of restricted paradigm of um, kind of liberal legalism under which these um, these social movements are currently operating. Um, uh, so you know, if you're asking about about kind of you know viability, it, it seems to me very difficult. It would involve very different kind of uh, um. Operation.
5: Sorry.
3: No. Um. Something i been thinking about it is that. So a group, a group like HIC is doing gay marriage primarily from um, this equality, this legal standpoint. Yeah. Whereas the opposition, such as you know Bush or somebody like Pat Robinson, is based in religion. So what role? really, it seems like there's two different arguments. Like, we need this because legally, whereas the people opposing it, and which is proposed, the supposed amendment to the Constitution, is based on church beliefs, on religious beliefs. And so, it seems like the, the arguments, they're using two different bases, and so I'm just wondering, like, what role the religious right has in the gay marriage debate? Because it's not, and you've heard a few things like, oh, well, the country group will go get bankrupt if gay people get married because then we're going to have to use benefits. Um, and that's the only thing I've heard everything else is based very much on um, religious conservative Christian Christianity so I'm just I just think it's really interesting because it's one one group is talking about as a legal institution and another is talking about as a religious institution and so how is it well
1: I'm not sure that's completely right okay because um, I mean I mean there are a couple of different arguments that I understand from from the 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 right-wing anti-gay marriage movement as opposed to the left-wing one, which, of course, is illegible. Uh, (laughs) But the the right-wing one uh, strikes me as as, as claiming that our law presupposes certain kinds of social structures and that our law only makes sense if we presuppose certain social structures. So Bush doesn't... I mean, he will certainly talk about the sanctity of heterosexual marriage, but he'll also say it's the oldest social institution, which I find extremely funny from any <laughs> or, <laughs> or <laughs> anthropological point of view. I mean, not that it's a stitch of homework.
2: <laughs> you, know, you have no
1: idea what marriage came into be. You know, like what century it was, its relationship to what, you know, you just have zero idea. The oldest, okay, but let's have had, just like take it as a frank ideological utterance, right? The oldest social institution. Um, uh, it kind of reminds me of, of Rousseau's um, uh, uh, Second Discourse in a way, where right? He keeps naming everything the oldest social institution, and you can't kind of pe- keep track which one really is the oldest I think he's
4: using the Bible
1: as a Okay, well, there you go. That's lovely. <laughs> 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 that's what I love to that he is using like,
3: well, look at the Bible. You know, and that, you know, look at Genesis. You know, so I think that's what he's using as this, as his, yeah, as his history book is, is the Bible and Adam and Eve, you know, the whole
1: Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, blah, blah, blah. Right? Okay. Yeah. All right, but even, okay, even if I then concede that point and let's say that there are both, I mean, there's social arguments and there are religious arguments and sometimes they're intertwined in some complex ways. Um, uh, but, in each case they're being invoked in order to say something about what the um, the necessary background of the law is. Okay, that the law is tied to certain kinds of cultural or religious or social traditions. And that um, even though they uh, may end, uh, and that the law will no longer make sense if it is detached uh, from these these institutions, um, um, upon upon which it relies and which it, it indexes explicitly and impl- implicitly. So, um, uh, you know, it seems to me that it's in relation to the law that those other bases are being um, invoked, and that there there's a there's a tradition of legal argumentation that's like that. You know, you go back to Hegel or even H.L.A. Hart, right, who would say that you know, law only makes sense. When certain kinds of cultural conventions are in place, uh, and that law, and there were arguments in the French Revolution, right? I mean, that was like what you know, Bur- you know, Burke was out of his mind about. It. It's like how can you have these laws that are going to, you know, decimate the social institutions upon which they rely? Uh, it will become purely formal, and it will become terror- terrorizing. Uh, it will become violent, um, and and so there's a you know the question of whether. You know, those social religious institutions are detachable from law as it, as it currently functions. Is
2: you know is,
1: is, is, I, is I think what's what's really at an issue, or, or, and whether whether the law in its formality, you know, can can become applicable to social institutions that were never anticipated in the making of the law or in the existing um, jurisprudence that we have. And and so I, I think that's where you're. I think that's where you're seeing this. I don't think it's a religious basis versus a legal basis. I think it's two different approaches to law and what legitimates law. Yeah.
8: I was wondering if you saw any positive potential of, and this is my really weird, of keeping the linkage between marriage and kin precisely because of the notions that were in the one article. G. Jacques' idea of sort of a, a phantasm coalition, or your ideas about critical repetitions of, of marriage. And at some point, if it would be possible because in my eyes it seems like there is, this might be going in the direction is it possible to decenter the term marriage to a sufficient degree in these sort of critical reputation that we're stuck in any way to just erode it as a viable category which would then seem to have attached to a kid or at least or, because it seems like even though you call something you call something marriage it could be a million different things all of our private lives are entirely different yes. at some point by exploding this notion it seems like that would be another way in that would keep it's kind of in keeping with the theory that Kind
1: of well, you know, it is one way. It's one way. Uh, I think that um, Morris Kaplan makes that argument in Sexual Justice. I think that Eve Sedgwick implicitly makes that argument um, in her very early work Between Men. You know, where she basically says that heterosexual marriage has been the breeding ground of gay desire since its inception, and um, that that anybody who thinks heterosexual marriage excludes gay people or works to their detriment, you know, is wrong because um, uh, once you're married, uh, that gives you, as it were, the freedom to do whatever you wish. <laughs> and, um, and so her view is that it actually produces a kind of public cover, you know, for all kinds of other desires that get to breathe happily in, 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 in silence. You know, and she actually goes on to valorize that. Um, so, um, you know, so that, that's one way of understanding you know, marriage as working kind of to produce desires outside of its own regulatory domain. Um, I think you could also, um, uh, I think there were many marriages that were happening in San Francisco that were public statements. I'm not quite sure those, those people went home together, all of them.
2: Uh,
1: <laughs> you know, it was kind of an act of civil disobedience. It's like, okay, so we're, you know, I do, one couple, they were fighting like mad, considering breaking up, and it's like, gotta do this for political reasons. I'll meet you down there at two <laughs> o'clock. Um, there was somebody who has my last name who propositioned me and said that she would change her name for me, which I thought was very sweet.
3: Um, and of course, I, you know that, you know, I, I could
1: imagine, you know, marrying that person with whom I have absolutely no personal relationship, way before I could imagine marrying the person I've been with for 13 years. Of course. You won't have anything to do with it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, but, but the, um, uh, you know, so yeah, I think there are, you know, you know, and there, and I suppose, you know, to delink marriage from all of these ways in which it's been a prerequisite for healthcare, for pre- parenting, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to delink it, you know, and to just allow it to become kind of free floating, yes, that's possible. How one would it control that, I don't think is. I think that the idea that one could control it is maybe a little too hopeful. And here I would distinguish um, between a position that would say, um, let's get married, okay, let's have gay marriage and let's make adoption, joint adoption rights and joint parenting rights into an entitlement of marriage that would be one one view, and that would be a view that would actually seek to subsume parenting rights under marriage where it's actually already been delayed. Okay? Another view, which is the French view, is okay, you can anybody can go into a domestic partnership. In fact, I gather now most of the domestic partnerships in France are between heterosexuals. I think assume the majority is heterosexual because you evade all those horrible property laws that go with marriage in France. Of... Um, uh, But, okay, anyone, regardless of sex, can enter into a domestic partnership, but uh, no lesbian or gay couple may have access to reproductive rights or joint adoption, reproductive technology or joint adoption rights. At which point, what you're doing is saying that a a given group of people, mainly gay and lesbian, may not have access to those Rights jointly, and they can't have them singly either. Um, And so you have a you have a a discriminatory law that's delinked, as it were, uh, recognition for the couple from parenting rights. And in fact, the only way it got through the Asamblea Nacional was to say, "Don't worry, don't worry, it's just symbolic. Um, They'll never be able to adopt together. They'll never be able to reproduce together. Only." Women inside heterosexual marriage can have access to reproductive technology because then it's assistance rather than control la mortu.
8: It seems to me to be, I guess, to try to redirect my position, would be if we're trying to get things that are currently politically unspeakable to become speakable, the premise of one way to make the premise of marriage, making marriage the premise of kinship, one way to bring that into the debate, which it started to happen, is by creating a crisis in some ways, maybe that, and I think that, maybe that, and that's where I thought this idea of performative or work is to, is there in some ways, to keep the linkage and just to be, use that as ways to make this conversation that has to happen, that maybe it doesn't have to happen right now. Or, you know I mean? or, or by keeping the linkage, that, you know, is never going to afford, the only, way, the only way this conversation about marriage and kinship is going to happen is if somehow these premises you know, are requested services.
1: Yes, but if, if you pre- just re-signify pre- re- ree- marriage, if you just say, oh, here's a category, marriage, let's, re- let's performatively resignify it, and it will take on new means I never had before, happy, happy, uh, then what gets foreclosed is the question of why, why marriage, why just marriage, and if it's and in what direction is it being resignified? Is it acquiring entitlements, or is it dispensing with entitlements? and at what expense to others who are outside the form. So but I don't even know if we go to others and
8: it has a way to hasten that conversation. Like, it forced, I think it is a way to force the hand of the conversation. I'm not sure. I'm
1: not sure, because if we just think, because our eyes are only on marriage, right? And we go, oh, look, let's just open up this institution so that it's available for all kinds of meanings and possibilities. We're not watching to see whether entitlements are going along with that proliferation, and whether what we're doing is expanding the hegemony of marriage rather than undermining it. So I guess I would argue against the gender trouble version of performativity in, in relationship to this at this point. Um, okay, so there, there were some other questions that I think got put to the side. So um, who, who hasn't been addressed or who would like to... Move the conversation in, the, in another direction. I
6: just wanted to come back to my question about yes. um, the relationship between the states and individuals and how they come to be as good the and how they come to be coherent or how they become or how they come to be real. Um, I'm trying to understand how. Um, well I imagine that there are other ways in which uh, certain kinds of relationships. Certain forms of kinship can actually exist, um, but at the same time, there's this uh, sort of problematic relationship to the state as well. We want the state to legitimate these sort of kinship structures and these kind of relationship structures, but at the same time, they already exist. Um, that's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can I add something to that? Yeah, I
2: think oh.
3: a lot It's also a question of how even if we're sanctioning things or legitimating them through the state, then how questions are like the national imaginary things like of that? Or I was it seems like those that's the a yeah. there too, that maybe the state or the law or you know, like these things figure in that way, but then becoming a principal kind of more in, in, in the space of the national imaginary. How that's happening or not. So. No. Um
2: Okay,
1: well, I guess, uh, you know, there's sort of two different examples of of this insensibility between what exists and what is recognized by the state as existing, and what the kind of ontological deficit is (laughs) of existing without without the recognition of the state. Um, The first, you know, is the situation where... um, Uh, and I, and, I, and I, I think I understand this sort of phenomenologically as, a, as, a, as, a, um, as, a, as an experience of, of destitution out of which the bid for something like uh, state recognition of gay marriages would, would emerge. The situation in which you live with someone for 30 years and they're ill and you take them to the hospital and you're told that you don't have the power to admit them or to make medical decisions about them because you're not next to kin and the, the only person who they've got is some uncle they haven't seen for 20 years and you've got to, they'll find him in a Nevada residential home <laughs> and that person has legal power over the over this this person you've been with for 30 years and, um, and you are suddenly nothing. You're nothing in the... In the eyes of the hospital, you're nothing in the eyes of the law, um, and depending what state you're in, you, can, you may or may not even be eligible to get um, medical power of attorney. Um, that's that's an impossible situation. And if, if by the way, the gay marriage bid came out of the AIDS crisis in a different way, not just compensating for the negative image of gay so-called promiscuity, it also came out when people realized that they did not have. Uh, the legal means they needed to be able to care for uh, those who were most closely, intimately, li- intimate with them. Um, so those those kin ties and those relational ties weren't weren't recognized by law or or medical or medical um, authorities. Um, so. Uh, so then that, 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 that kind of the question is, you know, what is the status of that relationship? What's the status of your love? And even when you can't receive the body after it dies in the hospital, what's the status of your grief or your standing in relationship to that person? Um, it seems to me um, that there's a deep, you know, I would, I would kind of call following, you know, Sartre, <laughs> a kind of derealization of love and loss. Um and it's a de that happens by virtue of there being no available institutional recognition um, for the status of that relationship or the status of that loss. Um, and I and I do think uh, that one can talk then about living in a kind of ontologically suspended mode, you know, to cite Agamben. One could talk about uh, living a kind of shadow life, which is the way that Hannah Arendt, you know, describes the kind of private sphere that's that's shrouded from and shrouded in in, in secrecy or in or in shame or in non-recognizability. I think there are uh, a variety of ways of talking about what it is to live um, to live love and loss in in a domain when where it is not recognizable as true love or as true loss. Um, yeah, I think I see a
6: tension between uh, that scenario that you're describing and. You also, your call also to maintain um, this radical sexual politics as well um, because it seems yes. to because the scenario that you described seems to be um, focused on rights of access or at least the possibility of access to, yes. um, to these certain rights that's right. at the same time there's um, I a kind of question in the back of my head well why should we accept
1: uh, the legitimation of the state why should we accept that's the right. realization no, well, I think, I think you've understood the paradox that I'm outlining in the paper then, if, you, if you're out to that tension, because that's precisely the um, uh It seems to me, phenomenologically speaking, that that's a really understandable desire to want entitlements under those circumstances. It seems to me, phenomenologically speaking, that it makes perfect sense to be incredibly critical Um, of the idea that the state and the state alone or primarily should have the power to recognize my my relationship and the rest. So it's almost like the green card issue. (laughs) like, get the entitlement, but but then how do we rethink the way in which society is structured such that that's the way I needed to get that entitlement. Now, I would argue that actually to be entitled to um, medical power of attorney or indeed to receive the body or to receive the property or not to be linked with marriage. But you're right, we are dependent on the state. It would be ridiculous to think we could be purely anarchist, right, or purely um, um, uh, purely uh, opposed to state power as if it were nothing but some kind of nefarious regulatory mechanism. I don't think that's viable or plausible. On the other hand, how, I mean, this is the ethical dilemma of the paper, and it's probably the ethical dilemma of the Antigone book as well, how to negotiate when you must with the state apparatus without becoming, as it were, fully regularized and regulated and disciplined in its terms. And I think that that's an ongoing dilemma. So if you saw tension there, you saw exactly the heart of the problem. You know the other the other example I was going to give is is this example from the paper on on the on, the, on what's called des mariage in, in in France which is the state of being outside of established marriage in one way or another. You were married and you no longer are married again or you are married but you actually have a separate kinship system and the marriage is merely formal. Uh, you were never married uh, but you have a child and you struggle with Whatever you've got, or whatever what, there, there's all there are all kinds of um, ways of discussing social arrangements that are that are outside of a, of the heterosexual um, um, uh, the family that has heterosexual marriage and children and property as its as its core. And you know, Henri Fassin, the sociologist um, of the family in in, 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 in France you know, makes the argument that it's extremely interesting that um, the French state of culture itself will, will come crashing down if marriage is undermined. And yet, the majority of French citizens right now live in a state of démarriage. So how is it possible that ideologically they can still believe that culture will be destroyed if the existing conditions of life are allowed to exist? That, that seems to be the way in which that ideological conviction flows down. So, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how to understand that, but it's another moment, I think, where there's a kind of incommensurability between how life is, as you say, actually being lived and what the ideological understanding of its livability is. It's already being lived in precisely the ways that are being called unlivable.
3: Yeah. I have sort of a, a different um, direction, but I think it's, it's related. I, I was thinking about the possibility of sort of a parallel genealogy of the gay marriage, like the push for gay marriage as a response to um, maybe increasing visibility of like gender yes. Um And I'm thinking about um, you know, especially because, like, the term transgender seems to sort of, have, like, dropped out yeah. of, of the political That's line. That's part of
2: what's going on, yeah.
3: And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that HRC is sort of spearheading it because they're really very reluctantly trans-conclusive. Um, and so I'm just wondering about if you have, if, 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 have any... Um, Stop on yes. that interesting <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That way, because um, I'm trying to, and yes. I'm not getting very Okay. Popular.
1: So, okay. So the other really interesting group in D.C. If you're going to look at lobbies like this is Gender PAC. Okay. And I think that their website is extremely interesting, and I would say that it actually constitutes a very different um, political direction from the human rights campaign. Um, one of the things that I think Gender PAC has done is to draw attention to gender discrimination, not simply as the discrimination against women, although including that, you know, not just in feminism at all, but including that, but understanding uh, discrimination against um, all kinds of people, but especially young people who are gender queer or who are read as effeminate or masculinized inappropriately or are read as trans. And my sense is that, um, that that there there are at least two agendas there which I think would be better (laughs) off as the agenda of the movement at this point. One is um, um, uh, violence against um, um, the differently gendered, uh, especially um, differently gendered youth and especially within um, communities of color. Um, uh, Not always by communities of color but within communities of color. Young genderqueer people of color on the streets or in the bars, and then the other point there um, is um, teen suicide, which also has alarming rates of, among young lesbian, and gay, queer, trans people, and, and not enough social support. And I and I feel like um, the progressive narrative that the human rights campaign subscribes to is, oh look, we're now in the mainstream know everything's fine, but in fact there are many people who are still radically stigmatized on the street and who are um, who are targeted for, for social violence. Um, and that I feel like this um, that this whole dimension of the movement has been sidetracked because it doesn't fit with the progressive narrative that says, oh, we're we've assimilated successfully or only pay attention to those of us who have assimilated successfully and reward us for that assimilation. Um, you know, the other, the other alternative movement that I think is really important is a lot of these um, housing projects for older lesbian and gay people uh, that have been established in major urban areas, um, which assume that a lot of people in their... In retirement of retirement age are are not necessarily in uh, um, in family structures or in um, um, uh, uh, couple forms, and uh, producing uh, communities of care, as it were, um, uh, for 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 people who are who are aging and who may well need medical assistance as well. And I think that's a kind of an alternative kinship movement, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I which I would strongly support. So yeah, I think there are these other dimensions.
3: Cause I'm sort of thinking that like this idea of like a transgender something has like has the possibility. I think with the option of like a critical repetition of marriage as a way of sort of um, forcing. I, I guess I'm sort of thinking of a, a person I know who's fully transitioned, like female to male. But has the misfortune of being born in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Right, which is like one of the few states that will not allow him, like in Tennessee, like he's a woman, right, with a beard and everything else. And so I'm thinking that like contradictions like that, like the very real existence of contradictions like that, like you know, how can he like where can he get married and under what circumstances allow the possibility, perhaps, of a of a way to do marriage without sort of mimicking exactly?
1: Well, I'm not against mimicking exactly. Right. You might even say I don't think mimicking exact. Right. But, um, okay, let me tell you a different case. I don't know about the Kantaras case. K-A-N-T-A-R-A-S. But this was a case in which um, a female to male transsexual had married a woman and um, had a child. The, the woman had a child, I gather, with the The trans man's brother's sperm, and uh, and what happened there is is that the the man, the trans man, call him that, um, brought up these children. They were ages 13, 15. The relationship fell apart. Uh, It went into a custody dispute, and the woman said, "Look, the marriage is um, invalid because uh, this man is not really man." And the judge, no one expected the judge in Florida to have any sympathy for this particular <laughs> um, trans man, but in fact, it was an 800-page um, decision. It was a huge, it's a huge decision, um, uh, which, which includes the full transcript of it. And uh, and the judge said, no, this this is um, a father, because, because fathers are social. It's a social category, fatherhood. And it doesn't actually matter what the biological history of this individual is. Um, he has acted as the father. He has acted well as the father. Uh, and under the eyes of the courts, the father. Okay, so this is pretty outrageous. It? Uh, and it's stands still. It stands. Now, so that would be an example, I think, where what happened to fatherhood. It seems it got re- it got reestablished as something that is, is, not, is not necessarily based in a biological tie. And we can find lots of other cases, especially in reproductive technology, where it goes in the opposite direction where the biological tie trumps. But, um, uh, but in that case, it did not. So at least we have now a kind of schism in the discourse on fatherhood.
2: Um,
1: and, and it also has implications for gender. You know, um, if the court accepts that this is that um, this is the established gender and that for the for the purposes of this court, is it in the best interest of the child, has this person been doing the job, it's a question of practices, actions, fulfilling the role, and all of that was fulfilled. So the court wasn't about to get into any kind of metaphysical debate about whether a fatherhood well if it, yes it did. And it did in the sense that it, it understood fatherhood as a social category. The example.
3: Yes. But nevertheless, even though this case says that fatherhood is a social category, it's not saying that sex is a social category. Because the sex is considered something essential that can't actually change or without surgery. So, I mean, the, but the violence that comes against a person when we have somebody who physically and possibly genitally is replicating somebody of a male biological sex has identification that marks him as female and thus would not be able to get a marriage license or to travel under a passport or um, anything along those sort of lines seems highly problematic and like what are we supposed to do with that as as a state who will not who will will say that we can have access to these sort of gender biological altering um what am I trying to say technology but we cannot sort of that your sex is not actually able to to change underneath this state
1: well are you saying that that's true in the state of Florida
3: I'm saying that I, I have no idea where that, that is true or yeah. not I think there are
1: plenty of places where you can you can petition for sex reassignments legally
3: right but your identification.
1: What do you mean? You mean in terms of your passport and your birth certificate and the rest? Right. No, you can actually change all your legal documentation. Really? Yes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's nothing in the Cantaras case that says that biological sex, you know, cannot be changed as such. Mm-hmm. And there are interventions at the, at, the, at the biological level through hormones that would actually dispute that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, you know, there are several places where mm-hmm. you can actually mm-hmm. successfully petition for a legal sex reassignment. And, and have your documents request that.
3: And if you're in a heterosexual marriage in many cases and you have your sex reassigned, that marriage still stands as legal. Yeah,
1: in some places. And <laughs> in some places and in some places not. Right. But these are in dispute right now. They're, just, they're in dispute. Yeah? But
2: if you
3: can't, isn't this, could this issue potentially come back like, biological sex and being like no I'm really a man and you know how do they how will they control when people start to realize that they can
1: apply for sexual reassignment and then get
2: married
3: or then get
1: the benefits or has that happened yet? Yeah. So you're coming to my talk later? You don't have to. No I (laughs) am. Because one of the things I'm talking about is the, uh, the process you have to go through for sex reassignment. Oh great. And and you have to comply with the diagnostic um, manual, you know, the, the DSM manuals um, uh, um, requirements for gender identity dysphoria. So you, you have to qualify as having a disorder. And if you can qualify and get a lot of papers together that 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 claim that you are really and truly what you claim to be, you can you can affect Do you that. No. No, you can have legal sex reassignment without going through a transsexual operation or without any hormonal, um, you know, the legal assignment is quite different. A gender presentation, gender presentation mm-hmm. is quite different, and you can be transgendered—that is to say, uh, not necessarily undergoing an operation or any um, or any uh, uh, hormonal ingestion—and um, still and still have have a, have a legal reassignment. Yeah, it's a complex terrain. I guess there were um, a couple of things we didn't talk about. Kate said something about the celebration of difference or instability. I, don't, I didn't mean to say uh, that. I don't think instability is to be celebrated.
3: Well, and celebration might have been the wrong yeah. word for you to use, Yeah. But Chris and I were actually discussing this before we came over here today, the fact that there's a portion um, of one of your articles, right? What was I saying? Uh, um, that, <laughs> um, <laughs> that, you, okay. I mean, basically, a, a commentary that runs through several of, of your, of, or a couple of these articles, is that you have this illusion that woman is a, signifies this stable sort of identity, this stable subject, but that that subject is is not itself stable and cannot really be stable but for political efficacy we kind of you know we sort of um, uh, mobilize around the idea of woman mm-hmm. in order to mm-hmm. in order to promote sort of political change um, or a, a subject around which political change can be affected upon and then you say but um, there's there's this there that that the multiplicity of the subjects behind the signifier of woman should be should be a, a, a place where political action can take productive means. Yes. Um,
1: and, and I see what you're saying. saying. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Um, okay, well, that's a sort of different argument. I mean, that's that's an argument that actually is saying um, that, uh, that the category of women has to be understood as internally differentiated and... Um, and that, uh, that there's no one definition mm-hmm. um, under which all women will, will stand or that we can tell consensus among all women. Mm-hmm. And that, that we have to accept the unavailability of that definition. And I think once we accept the unavailability of that definition, then we get um, the category of women as a site of contest around which women gather or other people gather or a number of people gather. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, uh, you don't have to accept this or that version of what it is to be a woman in order to what be a feminist, be part of an organization, etc. All you have to do is enter into a conversation about what its possible meanings might be. Mm-hmm. And it just seems to me that people would much rather join an organization where they get to hold a variety of views on that topic mm-hmm. than have to pledge allegiance to one norm mm-hmm. uh, before entering the door. Right. So it seems to me to be. Um, uh, 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 more democratizing to keep the category open and, in fact, more politically inclusive and more politically dynamic than it is to establish in advance what it means and only allow those in who will accept that definition. I think that's what's gotten feminism in a lot of trouble. It's considered very narrow, and a lot of women have ended up disidentifying with the notions of womanhood that have been put forth because they, are in fact, are too, are too normative and constraining.
3: So,
2: a relatively per, uh, well, personal question for you. What do you
1: think about the women's festival's ideas or rules that you know, to be a woman born a woman? I don't like, you know. <laughs> like it. So I don't like it. Where did enough. Simone de Beauvoir go? Simone de Beauvoir said, No one's born a woman. Mm. She said, One is not born a woman, one becomes one. So, yeah, and you can become some other things too. <laughs> I mean, I'd rather go to this wonderful war music festival. You know. <laughs> but I don't really go to music festivals. Like, you know, crowds and <laughs> I don't
2: really
3: like that music.
1: <laughs> I would be disqualified on several.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, do we let the faculty say something at the very end, or, or should we just, you know...
2: I actually
3: okay. Oh, I see. <laughs> get a question. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> um, Can you explain how that what you just said in
1: response to Kate is different than strategic essentialism? Well, strategic essentialism, yeah. which guy view that no longer holds to, okay, it's really important to understand that. It was, view, it was her view, which no longer holds to. But what strategic essentialism claims was that we should stabilize the category in certain ways for political reasons. Okay, so let's just say women are X so that we can move ahead. And let's not worry whether it's true. And I'm saying, let's not say women are X. Let's say women is an open category that's in the process of being rearticulated, and let's have that rearticulation be part of a democratizing movement. So it's anti-sexualist democratizing. In my, you know, in my view. Did you really, perhaps, have something to say? Really, I feel like I didn't get to everything. Final remarks from anybody? The third state, do you guys want to speak? Well, i
2: would be interested to hear. I think it was somebody over here who say something about what do we do now, um, the whole marriage thing, because I feel like in some ways we're being sort of
3: pushed, you know, to accept the political movement, and because being alternative is to say, well, you know, gays are people under the law. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I agree with you that rights should be uncoupled from of marriage. So for those of us who want people that are called, and I know that you're going to tell me that this is much more complex than us, but um, what do we do when, you know, our senators are voting on anti-marriage bills and, and there's an amendment possibly coming before the US Congress. Right. Well, uh,
1: okay. There's no question. I mean, it's very simple in this sense. I mean, do I get on the internet and, and am I told you know where all those polls are that they are for or against an amendment you know mm-hmm. mandating marriage as a heterosexual institution and I write and I say I'm, a, I'm against this amendment right I, I write you know I write my letter and I say I'm against this amendment this is a homophobic amendment it's terrible it's you know there's just no question you want to be politically you, you mobilize against those amendments that, that seems clear to me um, but It seems to me that under current conditions you have to do at least three things. You have to oppose the homophobic amendments. You have to... um, You have to... um, If you are going to, to, to come out in favor of marriage, come out in favor of marriage on the condition that it disarticulates certain kinds of rights and benefits from the institution of marriage itself so that it's not an exclusionary norm. And... Third, you need to valorize forms of social organization that do not comply with the marriage norm. And it seems to me that there are three forms of activity. I don't think there's anything inconsistent about um, about opposing the homophobic um, anti-marriage movement, insisting that marriage be redefined in a certain way and that if gay people are going to have it, it should be a more just institution and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be part of producing social hierarchies that are going to disenfranchise people who, who do not participate in it. And then thirdly, finding out what those other social organizations of sexuality and personal life and kinship are that fall outside the marriage norm and continuing to put them at the forefront of uh, a movement. I, I I don't see that there's anything else to do. But is that too much to do? No,
3: because I, I, I would like to that. do that. I think I'm being allowed <laughs> to do the first thing and not the second too. By whom? By the political that out
1: there, right? Yeah. Well, all more reasons to become critical.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I do think. Um, I mean, the nation has asked me to actually write something on gay marriage, and I, but I realized that I, I you know, they're expecting me to write pro, pro or con, and I realized, of course, I can't possibly do that. So, you know, and, and I wish more people would be calling me to question the terms, you know, by which we're being asked to choose. I think it would be uh, it would be great, and I do what I'm going to do. But I'll do something. Well, thank you for your conversation. I really uh, appreciate it. Um, a lot of good, interesting questions, and I'm sorry if I didn't get to all of them, but I gather I'll be here for the rest of the day, so you might be able to weigh me mm-hmm. and get some further remarks. Thank you. I wanted to thank, thank, thank
0: you. everybody and yeah. goodbye. luck. I'm here. This lunch was possible because of the Merchant Center and the Merchant
4: Citizenship Project. We all want to and just,
2: you As
8: uh, <laughs> I <laughs> <laughs> said, if you'll just jump it over there. You head out. It is raining, I hope
0: you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's 4.30 now at
2: Merchand.
0: Merchand.
2: free. Well that was pressure. That was like I, mean, I